Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Marketing Ops Confessions. Happy Thursday. It's good to see everyone here today. I love seeing our repeat attendees. Uh, and I see a few out there today. I see Jacob and Peter. And let's see who else do we have. I'm looking for some of our regulars who may not be on today. But uh, Andrew, hey, Andrew, how's it going? Um, we have another awesome session today and a power duo, and those are always exciting because you get to hear from not one, but two amazing leaders in the space who are tackling marketing ops, marketing, rev ops, and all of the above. And today we have Bianca Ashalu, VP of Marketing at Propel, and Alex Mooring, Senior Marketing Manager at Propel. So I'm excited for, to um, chat with them. And in a minute, we'll do some proper introductions. Uh, really quickly, first, I would like to go through just a couple housekeeping items. If you're new here today, uh, we really love to leverage the chat to keep it keep it active, keep it engaging. You can use emojis to share, you know, your excitement if you agree with something, if you're shocked by something. Um, and also, this is a great chance for you to ask questions, ask those candid questions that you want to hear um, feedback on, whether it's around, you know, the approach between building this awesome power duo relationship or something a bit more technical, and we'll pull those up on stage. And of course, if you have not heard, oops, sorry about that. If you have not heard, uh, we do like to uh, provide an, a little incentive for all of our attendees. So thank you for being here today. And you will definitely receive a follow-up um, and a gift card. Just give us a, a little bit of time to get that processed and it will be all yours. All right, with that said, excited to have you, Bianca and Alex. How's it going? It's going well. We're excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Well, this is an awesome power duo, and I'm really excited to kind of dive into understanding the dynamic and how you help each other and talk about some of the uh, initiatives that you've got going on at Propel. Uh, but first, I think it, we always kind of like to set the stage and would be great to hear from you both, you know, what's your background? Where did you start? How did how did this power duo come to be? Yeah, so I'll go ahead and get us started. Um, so, you know, I, I have a background. I actually started my career in uh, tech recruiting sales, um, which is a fun industry. Um, really found that, you know, I, I like sales, but I didn't want to do it long term. Um, really transitioned into working with a couple of like event startups on the side and kind of really just fell in love with marketing and all that it had to offer. Um, with that, you know, I kind of went to a hardware startup, really got a range of different experiences. I, I can tell you I did backend coding to random marketing campaigns, um, but we were a pre-product company, so the product wasn't quite done. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on there. Um, and then I actually landed at a company uh, that Bianca was at and you know, there I really kind of in chatting with her and really finding out exactly what I like to do. She's like, you know, this is exactly you're doing this job and this is what you really love to do. So she's the one who really helped me focus my attention into marketing operations and really showed me kind of this is where you're, you know, you're shining and where this is where I think you should really run into. So that was just the start is helping me under, you know, really identify out of marketing what I really love doing and really what I was good at and what I was passionate about. And so 
Um, so that's really where it all began for me. But um, and then now we're at a, I mean, not we're not even at that same company. We're at another company together. So it's been a it's been a long lasting relationship with between the two of us. So. Love yeah, this it. is um, our second go around, which is awesome. Uh, you know, when I went to Propel and when I'm in any marketing team, my first hire is always a marketing ops person because that's my background. Um, so I know the importance of that role. I started really my career in operations on the sales ops side. I, I worked at a law firm, actually, where they had Salesforce and they needed someone to run it. I had never used it really before. And so I kind of just started teaching myself. And from there, I just got more opportunities to learn marketing operations as I started running more campaigns and got some official training where I eventually went on to get certified in both Marketo and Salesforce. And that just really opened up a lot of doors for me to get into demand generation, digital marketing, eventually leading teams and crossing paths with Alex, which was just sort of a match made in heaven, I think, from skill <laughs> set perspectives. Um, you know, we'll get into talking more about how we work, but uh, our relationship is very much about just me dreaming very big and him coming in and saying, okay, this is how we're actually going to do it. <laughs> the voice of reason. Voice I love reason. it. <laughs> well, I, I love this because um, I, I think it's so important to like, like build your organization around good people and good relationships. And it's clear that you both have that. And I think that when you see teams move together, it's truly um, because they work so well together and they can get so much done and complement each other in amazing ways. So, I mean, I was also lucky enough to like have a similar relationship throughout my career. And you just kind of end up following these people yeah. around and always lifting each other up. And it's really important. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's dive into the dynamic a little bit because I think you two complement each other so well in like our previous conversations. And I'm excited to hear, you know, first of all, like how would you describe this relationship if we were to say like in three words? So if I had to put it in three words, it's, uh, I would say it's trusting. It's definitely a push and pull. Um, she's constantly pushing me and I'm kind of pulling her like, eh, is that really realistic? <laughs> but it's absolutely collaborative. Um, we, we would not, you know, we bounce off each other and riff off each other's ideas so well. And that those are definitely the three words I'd put in front. Yeah. Alex said it perfectly. Push and pull is I think the best description in three mm -hmm. words of our relationship, but we, we give each other a lot of balance, right? Um, like I said, I'm going to come in and I'm going to have a crazy idea or someone else is going to have an idea from higher up. And Alex is the person who's going to give us perspective and keep it reasonable and keep us on track. So, yeah, push and pull is the perfect description. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Alex, what is like one of the craziest ideas that Bianca's had? <laughs> I mean, she's, huh? what was that? They're probably around gold. <laughs> yeah, sometimes she has some she has some lofty ideas, but also like, you know, we, we just always are trying to push each other forward. And typically uh it's we hear some idea out there in the world on a different webinar or from a from a leader, and she's like, Well, how do we do this here? And it's you know, it's like, okay, that sounds great. Let's break down the nuts and bolts behind that and see really where, you know, is this logistically possible for us today? Do we have the software infrastructure? You know, I just kind of break it down to the the nuts and bolts of actually making that a reality. 
Um, and then we look towards the consequences and we're like, okay, if we do this, what are we sacrificing in, in putting this in place? Is this going to mess with our numbers in any other way? So just a lot of that stuff. So I would, I mean, she's definitely had some fun ones around goals and stuff before. Sometimes uh, her, her math on, on things is a, is a little looser than uh, than mine is. <laughs> yeah, I tend to believe it helps us dream big. So, <laughs> I well, you know, as marketers, we're like sitting here thinking. I, I don't think any marketer is good at math. Yet here we are doing all the math in the world, wondering what the heck. <laughs> Thank you. I always say I am not a mathematician, so I need Alex in the room to keep me honest. Otherwise, I'm going to be like. How many M&Ms are in that jar? jar? Like 5,000, of course. <laughs> yeah. 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 I always round up and very aggressively. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay, I want to talk about disagreement because I think that you two have a really healthy outlook on disagreeing. And so I would ask like, how do you work through disagreements? What are the things that you disagree on? The easy answer is probably everything, right? Because um, we approach campaigns and different ways of setting up Marketo um, just differently, right? Like I used to be in Marketo every single day earlier in my career. So I have a very sort of rigid ideas of how things should be run from naming conventions all the way through to how you're measuring things. And now I'm not in Marketo every day. So that is a job that has been reserved for Alex and his team. And so when I have an idea like, oh, we should set up scoring this way or we need to do more segmentation this way. Um, he's already got things in motion that I could be messing up by implementing this new thing. Yeah. So he'll be the one to say, maybe that's not the best way to do that or flat out like, no, we can't do that because <laughs> this thing is happening. And there have been witnesses to our back and forth. And then we eventually come around saying, okay, yeah, let's do it that way. All right, talk to you later. And that's it. Like, it's not even that. It's just five, 10 minutes of us back and forth arguing to settle on. Perfect. Great. Let's do it that way. Yep. See you later. <laughs> yeah. But it's always, it's always a push and pull. Like I said, it's, it's, we break down what the issue is or what we're trying to solve for. And, you know, we try to implement the best thing. Um, like I said, she's not as close to the the actual, you know, all the intricacies of how things are connected. So kind of I'm like, okay, well, it's a great idea. Let's let's see how that fits into all these other things. And then I kind of give perspective. And then by that time, we're like, okay, let's do it this way. And then we have an output. Um, but we normally, like I said, the disagreements don't last long. It's it's not a, it's more of a let's have the conversation. Let's you know, and sometimes she'll feel strongly and I'll feel strongly and be like, okay, well, we got to come to common ground. So what's, the, what are we doing? So, um, but it never lasts long. That's, I think that's also the very important part. We don't have these long disagreements, like we're doing things completely differently than we would expect each other to. So. Yeah, we both want the best for the company and for the system that we're building. Um, mm -hmm. And that's always in mind. So this is just kind of part of our process. It's just how we work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think it's super important. Um, and and we've heard over and over again on this series, like how critical it is for, um, you know, CMOs and VPs to really 
have a, a solid relationship with not only obviously like the marketing team, but marketing ops specifically and those who own marketing ops um, responsibilities. And I think it's interesting to hear because these conversations are always around like, well, as a marketing ops person, how can I strengthen that relationship as a marketing person? How can I, you know, coach, coach up and um, be responsible for forming that relationship? And I believe all of that to be true. We all have a responsibility when it comes to building relationships. But what we don't talk a lot about is what does that responsibility look like from the CMO and VP level? How do we um, meet in the middle to make sure that the CMOs and the VPs of the world are also very active and feel responsible for building those relationships. And Bianca, it seems that like you take that responsibility on for sure. And I would ask you like, what, what does that look like? Talk about that a little bit and how you feel um, we should be, or what we should be asking of people in, in your role. Yeah, I love this question a lot because I started at this company a couple of years ago as a director of Demand Gen. Um, and then Alex joined shortly after I came. Um, and at the top of this year, I was promoted to VP. And the big difference I think I noticed in thinking about this question is that when I was at the director level, Alex was included pretty much automatically in meetings I would have, right? Like if there was a decision-making thing that was happening, it wasn't weird for him to be there. When mm -hmm. I was promoted to VP, all of a sudden I found myself in these conversations where I was like, why isn't Alex here, right? Like. It's, there's like a weird expectation that the VP has to know everything about every functional area and be able to speak for it and then almost become a middleman situation, which I hate to be a middleman. Mm -hmm. so I think maybe what could be helpful for VPs and, and CMOs is to remember that you don't have to have all the answers in that the MOPS person is a strategic partner in decision making for the company. You know, we can't say that we're going to take on certain initiatives without thinking about foundationally how that's going to happen. And that happens a lot, right? So if there's something that I say I'm going to do or that the CMO says we have to do or wherever it comes from, um, and I start running in that direction, Alex could come across that later and it could have been all messed up, right? Mm -hmm. We could have done it wrong. And I, I see him nodding because this has happened, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely happened, yeah. Clean up our mess. The MOPS person should be there from the beginning as we're deciding what we're going to do. Yeah. That way we're efficient from the start. We don't have to backtrack and fix stuff. So maybe there's a little humility that happens there. Um, definitely some empathy. Um, but yeah, the VP should use your resources. And I don't think there's a more powerful resource than a MOPS person. And I could be saying that because I came from that background. No, I think it's absolutely true. <laughs> Alex, anything to add? No, I was going to say, I absolutely agree. And, you know, like I said, when I have been brought in those conversations, what ends up happening is it's just, we end up getting things, to, getting to a, a plan a lot faster, right? It's not, it's not this daisy chain of like, you tell her, she comes to me, I tell you all the things that may not work for that reason. And then you turn around and tell them, and then it, there's just, we cut that. And so, I mean, our CMO is very much uh, in line with us, I think most yeah. of the time. Um, typically the biggest things that come from us is when it's outside of the marketing team that someone needs something or, or, uh, something, a requirement is forced upon us in a way. And we have to then respond with, you know, is that possible and all that. So, um, but we, we are a pretty tight, uh, team as far as our marketing team goes here at Propel. So. 
Love it, love right. it. And I just warned, don't build things without bringing in an ops person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't just, yeah. Add, I'm gonna just add a field. Don't just do that. Like, let's really get someone in there who can think this through. Yes, we, we could repeat that so many times. It's so important. Um, and I'd love to hear in the chat from the audience too, while we move on to the next question, you know, what are some of the attributes or things that you're doing to foster these types of relationships at, at your organization? So feel free to share that as we move on. Um, Bianca, you started talking or you mentioned scoring a little bit, and I know just based on our previous conversations that the two of you have a new initiative and you've been working to roll out some new scoring. Um, my favorite topic, <laughs> and I'd love to dive into this and hear from you, you know, before we talk through the details of that project, like start with the problem, right? Right. So like, why did you feel the need to, you know, take a different approach to scoring in the first place? Yeah, I can sort of lay that foundation and then Alex can get into some of the details. Um, what we're seeing, and I think we're not the only ones, right? This is marketing. What's happening is that buyers are smarter than we've been giving them credit for. The problem has been that companies are very seller centric, right? We're putting things in place to make sure we can capture data, that we can score, that we can lead route. And what this is doing is creating friction for people who are often just trying to get to the information in a simple way. So we had all of our stuff gated, right? All of our content was gated because we needed information and we didn't see another way to get that. So it was all about us, 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 of course. Um, we started last year to make this shift into what would it look like if we were a company that was more buyer centric? Mm -hmm. What if you put them first and their experience first? Um, how would that change how we set up our campaigns, how we distributed content and what channels we use and how we use those channels. And that's really what set off this whole thing about there's some people who are coming to us literally just to engage with content. Maybe they're not ready just yet. Maybe they're doing research and someday they'll be ready. Um, but they're basically just engaging with the brand. And then there are others who may have gone through that already or who have an active project that are more ready to buy. So they are showing intent. So let's create a system. Let's create campaigns. Let's create really just an engagement engine that supports both sides of that um, without trying to make channels into something they're not. So that's really what sort of the problem statement was for us and how we decided to approach it. And what came out of that was evaluating how we were measuring that and how we were scoring people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Alex, I want to pause and make sure if you want to add anything. No, you, you can you can go on. I, I can get into the details, actually, how we're doing all this. But uh, yeah. yeah, perfect. OK. Um, I love this approach and I do, I definitely think it's like the way that marketing is moving, but we still have a lot of hesitancy right around because we're turning off well in the minds of at least, you know, sales for sure. And leaders like we're turning off the spigot um, when in reality, like we're just kind of redefining a little bit and looking more upstream and thinking more about quality and building relationships. But I think that with, with people who do not, really subscribe to that, it's it's very difficult to get buy-in. Um, so how did you approach, you know, getting buy-in from everybody on the team to charge forward with this? Yeah, the funny thing is we had to get buy-in from ourselves first, right? <laughs> like yeah, we, we didn't 
performance marketers forever. You know, we came up in the Marketo school and the HubSpot school. And like, that's how we learned what marketing was. And so to have to shift our own mindsets was really the start of this for us. And then it became a matter of going to the CMO and to the larger executive team and pretty much telling them performance marketing isn't the only way to make progress, which is a very tough conversation to have. And I'm not even 100% sure we have buy-in, but we're fortunate to have a CMO who trusts us, right? Mm -hmm. So it's giving us a little space to try this out. Um, and we're doing it little by little, and it's taking us a long time even to get to the point where we are today that Alex will describe. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's happening is that we've been able to build up enough trust over the last year and a half we've worked here together, and now they're giving us an opportunity to try something different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. Um, and yeah, I'd love to get into some of the details around like what what is this process looked like? Like, what are some of those really, you know, like, Ooh, I wish I would have known about this, you know, before we started, um, any of the road bumps that you've ran into things like that. Yeah. So we're still pretty early in the journey, but, um, how, how we're laying this out, at least from a a more logistic standpoint is really looking at the audience that would normally come in from a content download and really focusing that audience on just engagement. So not not trying to push these people, get to this magical lead score that then they become an MQL and they're forced over to a salesperson to make do with. Instead, we are focusing on this brand engagement audience, which we're hoping that we can become a more trusted advisor for instead of just trying to sell them something. And then on top of that, we have specific channels that we're considering intent channels. So these are things that are our key conversion points, things that we know that if somebody comes in on this thing, they're ready to talk to a salesperson or they're at least our salesperson should have enough, uh, you know, something from them to really show that they're interested in the product or at least learning more. Um, But we don't want to also negate the fact that there is this brand audience that we still could have intent so we have created these things called intent triggers from this audience. And, and in this, these triggers, we're both doing a reactive approach, which is you know through email, really making sure that inside of those email campaigns where we're trying to, to get engagement, we kind of put in place these emails that are specifically to those intent conversion points. So that's a reactive way, but then we're also taking a proactive approach by using our SDR team to, uh, to basically do call blitzes every single month to our, high, our most highly engaged ICP fit people in our brand audience, just to do these check-ins, just to see if they, hey, an email in their inbox and a call in their voicemail. Um, and then, you know, if they don't answer or don't respond, great, they go on a list in the next 60 days. So every 60 days, they're getting a quick call from an SDR just to see if there is a project, if there is something. If there isn't, then they just are there and they're like, hey, whenever you guys need us, we're here for you. Um, But they stay in that brand database where they're just continuing to get really high quality content from us. Um, And really, again, making sure that when that time comes, like like Bianca said, buyers know when to buy. They know when to raise their hand. They know when to request a demo. We kind of saw, I think before, we just always treated them like they we had to handhold them throughout the whole process. But I think buyers are a lot more smarter than they are used or than they used to be. And we just have to kind of continually adapt. So those are some of the ways that we're doing it. Again, still probably going to have plenty of bumps in the road as we move forward. But um, but overall, I think it's uh, it, you know we're we're excited about it. 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And something uh, that I always like to, you know, think about in in our little world of B2B marketing is what is B2C doing, right? Because they're light years ahead of what B2B is doing because they are thinking about consumers and humans and mm -hmm. um, psychology. And so I think it's interesting that we're kind of just now picking up on, you know what, people are going to be able to know when they're ready to buy. Um, and yes, I know that we're working organizations and, and accounts and whatnot, but we're still working with humans and individuals who are forming relationships at these accounts. And um, at the end of the day, like it's still human to human. So I think it's important that we recognize people are going to uh, really create their own journey and make those decisions for themselves. And, you know, persuasion is, is a powerful tool, but if someone's not ready, they're not ready. Well, that's such a good point. I think that demand generation was about relationship building before, mm -hmm. and then it became about sales. And marketers yeah. aren't salespeople. I don't know if people don't like to say that, but it's the truth. There's a difference between these two departments. And now with this new strategy, I think it's giving us a chance to do what we do best, which is be marketers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, okay, lots of lots of chatter on the on the lunch from last week in the chat room. So <laughs> don't worry, please. You will get your <laughs> cards. I understand. This is a very important aspect of this program. Um, although we have had a few a few people taking advantage of the gift cards, which is why we're having some some technical issues there. So please be patient. Um, I know you're all very hungry. <laughs> um, one hungry for lead score. Yes, please. That's, that's, that's more like it. Thank you, Andrew. Um, so I want to talk a little bit too about um, the SDR team because Alex, you mentioned that and we didn't actually get into this previously. Does your SDR team sit under marketing or what does that relationship look like? They sit under marketing. Yeah. So they moved into our team at the beginning of this year, um, our fiscal year in February. And there is an SDR manager uh, that reports in to me. And so all same levels, Alex and um, the other functional leaders here in Manjin. Um, there's five SDRs now. And so like Alex described, they'll work on campaigns with us, but they're also really focused on outbound. So mm -hmm. they have an ICP, a very targeted uh, list of accounts that they're going after. And that's how they're compensated is on really working that out, those outbound leads or contacts um, and converting them over to meetings for the sales team. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I was just um, on LinkedIn having this back and forth around, um, you know, it really started with like the definition of MQLs and whatnot. And then somebody was asking, well, what's your opinion on where SDRs and BDRs should sit? And I truly believe that they should sit with marketing, especially if we're constantly talking about how marketers need to own more revenue and pipeline and those types of KPIs, well, then we need to also own the people processes, processes and technology that move us towards that, which, you know, usually that next step is going to be that SDR function. Yeah, I always say they're with us because we're control freaks and we just want to <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, all, all of our, all the leads that come in and get you know, our MQLs, I mean, they're an essential part of getting them over to into an opportunity. And if we're truly a rev growth, you know, kind of company or, or focused on revenue and pipeline, mm -hmm. it, you know, cutting us at MQL, it, it really draws a distinct line between sales and marketing. But 
that's not our goal. Our goal is pipeline. So it really makes sense to have them as an extension or and either an extension or definitely a part of the marketing team. Because again, then it allows us to really streamline everything to pipeline. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, there's a couple questions on this SCR topic. So I'm going to actually start uh, bringing some of these up. Sure. And the first one is SDR pros and cons for having compensation include pipeline too, not just meetings. Oh, that's a really good question. So previously our team was measured on SQLs and at the SQL point, there was a, a pipeline conversion. I'm pretty sure Alex remind me if I'm wrong. Um, and so that was pulled into there. I think that for us with the complex product that we had and the how young our team was, a lot of them are fresh college grads, um, very new to an industry that is a very old industry. It was just way too complicated for them to get up and running ramped and be able to have the level of conversations that would convert someone to pipeline. It just wasn't happening. And so them reaching their goals was becoming much more difficult, which was discouraging the team. And there's a big part of managing SDRs, which is keeping them encouraged. And so what we shifted to instead was to those meetings where all they're looking for is to generate curiosity, right? They're looking to see, is this the right person with the right pain at the right type of company? And if they can have all those, then they would be qualified to, or they'd be setting them up for a meeting. From there, the AE would come down lower into the process and they would determine, okay, is this person actually ready to convert? Um, and then they would make that call. So there's two things that happened great there was that the SDRs, better chance at meeting their goals. And then the AEs would have more at bat. So they're having more conversations where they know more about our products, where they can really get into the nitty gritty with these very educated buyers mm -hmm. uh, and increase our chances of converting to pipeline. Yeah, makes sense. And I think it's also allowing people to um, do the things that they're good at, right? Like account executives and, and folks that are a little bit later in the process, like they're good at closing and that's what we need them to focus on, not, you know, discovery and really trying to like warm up that conversation. Exactly right. Um, okay, well, there's one more SDR question. How do you determine who the SDR team nurtures and who the marketing team nurtures? How do you ensure people aren't over communicated with? That's a good question. So I can answer this one. So for us, what we do is it's really about stages. So in our lead funnel, we look at there's a new stage, which is a marketing owned stage and everything MQL past is a SDR owned stage. So marketing is basically in charge of, and this new stage is what I call our brand audience. So these are the people who have come in, but they didn't uh, necessarily uh, what we consider intent MQL. So if they didn't come in on an intent channel, that's the only way that they get directly put into MQL. Otherwise they go into this brand audience and they go through these triggers in order to MQL. Um, prior to us making this shift, um, we were using the classical lead score to get them over to MQL. Um, so after they hit a certain lead score, they'd be sent over as an MQL. But since with this shift that we've made, which I think is, like I said, um, going to be a lot better, we still are allowing the SDR team a chance to communicate and touch this brand database, but ultimately they are owned by marketing until the SDR in an intent check-in call or a, a reactive email that the person, uh, intent email that they get, 
that's the only way that they get triggered over to be an MQL. And then after it's an MQL, it's owned by the SDR team. Marketing ceases all communication other than like webinar invites or big event invites. Those are the only time that we touch them. We're not in a consistent uh, cadence of emailing them. So that's kind of how we divide our labor. But like I said, it's really up to you guys. It's, you know, every company is a little different. So, mm-hmm. and mind you, our like you were saying earlier, our team, our SDR team is mostly outbound focused. So, mm-hmm. I'm someone who believes like an SDR, if they really were ambitious and wanted to go into the new database, they could, right? Like, there's, I don't think either of us would stop nope. them if they really felt inclined to go talk to those leads. Have at it. But for the most part, they are, like I would say, passively there for the inbound MQLs. And then they're spending the majority of their time outbounding to their target account list. Yep, got it. Um, And so thinking about these, like the way that you tier out MQLs, you have the intent MQLs. And then do you have like a hand raiser MQL, like somebody who's saying, okay, I'm filling out your contact desk form. Do you have any other um, tiers of MQLs? So what we're considering right now is just every intent. Uh, so we have considered, basically we have a list of nine intent channels. So, um, and those are various different conversion points on the website. Those are Google direct response ads. Um, those are like remarketing ads. Um, mm-hmm. Then we also have the email intent and the SDR outreach intent. So I don't know if we tier them quite yet. Again, I think it's still early in the process for us to understand that, but we definitely are making sure that they're declared as what, intent channel they're coming into. And we're really making sure that the education to the SDR team about what that S- that intent channel is and what it means and where did that person come from and how did they get there? Because that's going to help them with the follow-up. And I think this really simplifies for the SDR team because again, before there were so many inbound marketing campaigns to keep them all informed on every single little thing that we were doing was very, very challenging. And then they have to, they were creating like separate cadences for separate campaigns and it was just too much. So what we've kind of, by simplifying it, making it like a total of like nine to 10 intent channels, they really only have to understand those. And then they, and also understand how they can look back about what, you know, downloads that they've done or things that they've taken action on. But yeah. other than that, they really only have to focus about that because that's the thing that they're responding to when they first get the person. And I think that's the most important part because as soon as they go over to the SDR team, if they don't immediately hit them up with a relevant personalized message right off the bat, you know, you could just lose, they lose interest, right? It's just, it's a very quick process. And so the faster and quicker and the more personalized and direct to exactly what the person's asking for, the response, we think you're better off to get to pipeline. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. agreed. Um, and I would ask too, just as kind of to close the loop on this topic, how, how are you feeding the SDR team like those signals and the the information that they need to really create those personalized touches. Yeah, so I mean right now we are we're basically creating the first email as templates. So basically, you know, and then we're also making sure that they understand if, if they do come in from an intent trigger that there's a whole series of different things that they could have downloaded from uh the very first thing that they downloaded maybe it was an ebook um, and throughout their emails journey, they may have downloaded a couple other different things. Um, we're tracking that and we use interesting moments on Marketo to communicate that to the team so that they can basically just take a look back through their interesting moments and they can craft, Hey, I saw you downloaded something on this and something on this. Wanted to know your thoughts. What would, you know, what did, what do you think of this? Um, so they can really utilize the actions that the person's actually taken and turn that into 
actual actionable, you know, messaging that's going to be relevant to the to the person that mm-hmm. I mean. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, okay, so we kind of touched on a topic that feeds all of this, and this is your content strategy, which I love. And we have this debate all the time, like gate or ungate, gate or ungate. Um, and we actually do a hybrid at, at Mad Kudu for most things. So like if we have a guide, like we give you the ability to read it there on the page and that's ungated, but you can also download the PDF and that's where you're providing your email. So we found that to be a nice balance, but um, lots of opinions around this. And so I'm curious, since we know your opinion and it's ungate, um, what is what are some of them, and we kind of touched on this, but like, what are some of the things that you're measuring it? Um, um, what are what are some of the tools that you're looking at to like maybe um, backfill some of that information that you're not getting from people? Um, and you know, again, like, how did you really present this strategy? Yeah, this was a tough one, even for us to come around on. Um, so we were fully gated up until, gosh, I guess, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And the reason we were, like I was saying, is because we needed to capture that information. We just didn't see any other way that we'd be able to see that engagement without forms. Um, so we kind of just had to sacrifice that idea. We were like, <laughs> we are just going to lose out on some things, but we're hopeful that what we'll gain is that we'll be those trusted advisors for the buyers when they actually are ready to raise their hand. So mm-hmm. we're really... I guess settling on now was consumption, right? So we're looking at tools like Seismic or Highspot that do a little bit more than what Marketo was able to do. With Marketo, it was just a link, right? So you kind of lose visibility after that. But something like a Seismic lets you uh, see how far down someone is reading, what pages they're stopping on, if they're clicking any links. Um, and then that information is sent over to the sales team or stored in like a Salesforce. And I know they're working on a Marketo integration too, which would be interesting. Um, so these like content management systems we didn't have before. Uh, product marketing also is in need of that. And it turns out our people team is in need of that. We were using Guru and all kinds of things just to capture information and final versions of things. And so something like this would actually help across the company and on keeping up-to-date documents, the most current versions, but also allowing us to see what content is being consumed so that we can go on and create more content like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And does this expand, because you mentioned product marketing, so are you feeding product data like to your SDRs and like include it in your models as well? We personally are not. Um, It is something that we should be doing more of. I know Guru does exist to do that in Salesforce for the AEs, and I'm not sure how much the SDRs use that. But the way that we work with product marketing is that they're leading enablement, they're leading training, they're writing out scripts, um, they're giving us messages that we can test. And that's how the SDRs are sort of doing their their outreach now. Makes sense. Um, Great. So, and then... Alex, like, what are what are some of the things that like you're looking at on the day to day, and like when you're like you know feeding up reports and and some of those KPIs around these metrics within these tools? Yeah, so I mean, the biggest thing for us is if, if we're going to ungate something, we just need to accurately know how many people consumed the piece of content. Like like she was saying, we need that content uh, management system to really be able to take the place of what we would consider leads before. Um, but there are certain channels that we are still gating things, but um, typically it's just instead of asking for 
everything that we need to be able to send it over to a salesperson, we're able to ask for work email, first and last name, maybe, you know, again. So if we can just ask for three pieces of information, it's just super, it's so much easier to get someone to fill out a form. So that's critical, but also just really looking at the engagement of, of the specific host, um, you know, looking at things more organically. Um, like you said, B2C has had this down for years, influencer marketing, all of this stuff. We need to figure out how do we do that in the business world better. And so, and that's what I'm excited to continue. You know, I think right now we're going after the low hanging fruit and stuff in the brand arena, but I'm excited to open it up and continue to try and experiment with new things and take some of the stuff that B2C is doing and apply it to B2B because honestly, there are so, I mean, again, a B2B buyer buys B2C stuff. So we can figure out a way of, you know, putting that all together. I think that then, you know, we, we have that, you know, really forward thinking marketing funnel, which is really what I'm looking to accomplish. It's really hard. Uh, you know, again, this, it's, it's not an easy industry to sell into for us, at least, uh, you know, we're in the manufacturing physical product space and we're in a very soft subsect of that. So, you know, finding how to market to these guys, uh, to these people is very important, but it's also very challenging. So um, we're excited to try out some new stuff. Love it. Love it. Um, oh, we have another question here from Andrew. So back to the, the power duo theme. Yes, I love it. Um, what's an ops type of skill a marketer should have and vice versa? Oh, that's a really good question. An ops skill? I would say it's curiosity. Um, my whole thing, the way I got into this is by being that person when somebody needed something um, that I was able to figure out a something that we could buy, something that we could do, something that we could hack, you know, a, a workaround. Um, but it, you have to be curious in order to get to that answer. And so for me, it's always been a constant curiosity. And like, like we were just on this this system right here. First question was, what is this system? I need to look into this, this virtual system, but it's because I'm constantly looking for the next best thing and all, you know, and I think that's a, the most critical piece for ops people. You have to be curious um, and want to learn new things. So because there's always going to be something new. <laughs> I think from my side, it's probably just being able to process large amounts of information without panicking, right? Because there's technology, there are processes, there are other people involved and everyone wants something right now, right? So you have to have a certain level of patience, gather the information you need and not let that rush you into a decision, right? Like you have to be able to take it all in and then make the smart moves from there. Um, you're still moving pretty fast. I think as a mob, all mobs who I know work really fast. Alex is exceptionally fast. Um, so the processing is happening in his head even without me noticing it. Um, but he's still doing it. You know, he's not rushing to make any of these decisions because that's how things break. You want to still make sure you're being efficient. Yeah, I love that. Um, yes, it's interesting that trait um, with marketing ops folks is that I do think that like we're thinking about things like 10 steps ahead and um, maybe, a lot, maybe we just all have like ADHD or something. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a good question in the chat and um, it is from Sarah. What is the ideal process on lead source in the opportunity object in Salesforce? Do you think it should come from lead original touch point? The age old debate. Uh, 
You know, I think every company is different. Um, what I found is that original touch is the simplest. And unless you're able to create the infrastructure to do some sort of other attribution, which there are software and different things that can do that, um, I think that it's, it's definitely more effective if you can do multi-attribution and all of that. But what I found is that it, it starts simple and grow big, right? get to the point where you can you can manage that and, and you have the ability to do it correctly. Because if you don't, it becomes more challenging and then it just becomes like, you're not really sure what's going on. And just, that's my, that's my take on it is simple is better um, unless you have the bandwidth and power, uh, manpower to actually really fully uh, embrace multi-attribution. Yeah. Put a limit on that too. If the first touch was like five years ago. Like, let that go. <laughs> Let's start with someone more recent, whoever like rewoke up this opportunity. Yeah, agreed. And like operationally speaking, or I guess like process wise, like that that then means that we're having to like change the roles on the on the opportunity, and like that kind of goes back into like change management and like changing people's behaviors. So, um, and Sarah, you had a follow up question. Um, or do you think it should come from the last campaign that the primary contact role was part of within the op? Go um, ahead, you both are. <laughs> it's so situational. Like I said, I, I just, I, you know, I, I think it, it really comes down to what's be best and easiest and most efficient for, for your team. Um, I, I think when it comes down to it, when you're trying to figure out ROIs, that becomes the challenging part. One of the things that I've done to really kind of make, take this out of the equation is use campaigns in Salesforce um, to make sure that you can, you can basically measure the influence of a campaign. So when somebody goes into an influenced uh, MQL, even if that's not the primary place that made that an MQL, they still get marked as the status as influenced MQL. And we also have influenced SA, which is our sales appointments. Um, and then they get influenced op in there. So we can measure a campaign in just the Salesforce campaigns specifically, but the attribution on the lead source is very simple. Um, and it becomes just first touch for us. But um, that's a way of measuring campaign, you know, effectiveness, um, you know, without having to make sure that you have multi-touch attribution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say a similar thing, right? Like if your company cares about campaign effectiveness more than anything, then I can see that being a reason why they would want to make that the source on the opportunity. If it's just about that last campaign that made a difference. Um, but I haven't found that companies I've been at um, care at that level very early on first touch type things. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. Uh, and marketers can be really scared of Salesforce campaigns and it is the key, like you have to use Salesforce campaigns if you want to, you know, get close to nailing attribution. Um, and just know your attribution limits. Like it's not attribution. I have one of my favorite new mugs is attribution is literally made up. That's from Amanda Nielsen. She has a fun company called thought leaders. Um, but yeah, I mean, attribution is, is it is what you essentially define it to be, which is usually like, you know, what you want, what, what success looks like. So it can be a difficult topic and, um, we screwed up all the time and we just had kind of have to accept those limitations. Um, Sarah, your question on, um, the SDRs randomly assigning primary contact roles sounds like kind of like a process related issue of, 
and perhaps something that would be like really wrapped into change management and making sure that like the SDRs truly understand the process of, you know, who should be assigned on that opportunity as the contact role versus randomly assigning one person. Um, and I found it helpful to just like always like on a monthly basis, kind of refresh the documentation and going through that training for SDRs to make sure that they know exactly what should be happening and who should be going where at what time. Yeah, things should be happening at random. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, especially when, you know, thinking about like HubSpot, for example, um, and if you're pulling in, you know, people on the opportunity, like it's going to look at that field of like, who's the primary role. And if it's not set, sometimes you won't even see that opportunity then, um, you know, appear in, in your marketing automation system. So yeah, definitely a change management process related issue that um, is not is not easy to tackle because it's change behavior, right? <laughs> yeah, <Hard is>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Andrew agree. I think the question can be both attribution related as well as the default thing the SDR sees. Um, and I think too, and it sounds like Alex and, and Bianca, you're sort of on this same vein of, of really providing as much info, not overwhelming amount of information, but identifying like what is the most important pieces and how do we display that easily? Um, and and stamp, like we timestamp everything. Um, we, we make sure we're stamping campaigns first and last touch and that influence, uh, MQL influence that you talked about. So I think really getting those timestamps down and the workflows between your campaigns and then like making sure that those are transferred to the contact uh, layout and then the opportunity is like that that is the way <laughs> right and I mean this is I guess where Alex and I maybe recently disagree is about how much work should go into building stuff right like I don't want to yeah. overlook anything anymore I really want to just provide the essential information that an SDR or someone needs to take action because mm -hmm. too much stuff or too many campaigns or too many emails, it becomes unmeasurable. Like you cannot optimize when you've got 30,000 emails out there that you have to test and things. it's just not possible. So I'm trying to figure out a way that we can scale back like to our nine and 10 channels, right? We don't need 30 and 10 channels mm -hmm. or a few emails. We don't need that many emails, uh, but it's pretty tough to do that when you want to stay active, but active does not always mean progress. So we're just trying to figure out how to be essential. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And, and it's hard to, because we come from like the school of thought that we were all raised on that, like more is better, right? More information is best. You have to get as detailed as possible. And now we're like, wait a second, but we need to keep it simple and go back to basics and make sure that the foundation is where we want it to be before we start adding all of this information on top of that, which exactly can be really, right. really difficult. Exactly. Um, well, I know we're out of time. This has been such, such a great conversation. I appreciate you both. Um, thank you so much for being here. And if people want to, you know, follow your journey or reach out, where's the best place for them to get in touch? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I don't know my thing, but be a Shalu probably. <laughs> I just my personal I don't use it that often. So Twitter or LinkedIn. Yeah, Perfect. LinkedIn for sure. 
Love it. And um, just bringing this back up to remind everybody, we, yes, this is a weekly, weekly series and we have a sauna with us next week, Ashley Zhang. And she is, I was just on the prep session ahead of this call and it's going to be a really great conversation with our co-founder, Francis and Ashley. And they're going to talk about all of the different ways that Asana has, um, you know, qualified or, or tiered out MQLs and, and what that initiative looks like. So it will be a really great combo next Thursday. And that actually will wrap up our season three of Marketing Ops Confessions. So keep your eye out in your inbox because we will be announcing a brand new lineup for season four within the next week. And I'm really, really excited because we have some amazing names and one that I will name drop because I'm like fangirl out. Scott Brinker is going to be joining us from Chief Martech. So um, yes, keep your eye out on that for a season four announcement. Um, all right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Bianca and Alex, and uh, really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks so much for having us. So much fun.